What's up? This is Keith Nelson. You're listening to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show with my friend Joe. Welcome to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, episode number 53. I'm your host, Joe, and tonight my guest is Adam Hamilton. I had a great time talking with Adam about the time CeCe DeVille walked into a club and saw him playing, to the times in LA Guns, and everything in between. Adam is currently producing music and has worked with William Shatner, David Hasselhoff, Leif Garrett, and Vanilla Ice, just to name a few. Adam is such a nice guy. It was such a pleasure to talk to him tonight, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, if you like the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, head on over to Instagram, Facebook, and now Twitter. We just started our Twitter account, and you can find us there at R&R Coffee Show and follow us on social media. Also, please make sure you go and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and go ahead and give us a uh, review while you're there. All those little things help. Hey, man. Damn it, man. Can, is it working? It is working. Great. Well, here's the thing. So I had to use my old phone. See, I, yeah. I just had this conversation with uh, Keith Nelson last week because that's when I got the yeah. phone. Yeah. And uh, the new phones don't have that 3.5 jack on them. And that's how it oh. connects into my audio interface. Oh, man. So I got an adapter that connects it, but clearly that didn't work. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. That, that's the thing about Apple that I, as much as I love them, they're always changing shit. It's like, why? It's like you'll don't fix something that's not broken. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so now I didn't know this, but I can use my old phone, even though it's not connected to service. I can use it through the Wi-Fi. Oh, great. So that's how we're doing this. Perfect. How are you, man? I'm doing okay, man. How about you? I'm doing all right. I got my uh, first COVID shot yesterday, and it. Uh, oh, that's exciting! That's big. It is big. It it uh, knocked me out today, though. I tell you. Man, the second one got me. And my wife got her so bad she thought flu for like 24 hours. Oh, geez. Yeah. But that's good though. That's they say that that's your body. That the the worse your body reacts to it, the 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 more effective it's supposed to be as that's what they say that's what they say that's what i hear so. yep yeah so that's good that's good you'll it'll be better for you in the long run yeah man all right well listen Great. so let's um welcome to the rock and roll coffee show awesome man thanks for having me yeah no problem thanks for uh coming on i know we've been talking about it for a couple months now i would say absolutely um so let's start with uh with you, you grew up in uh, Shreveport, correct? Yep, Shreveport, Louisiana. What what uh what's it like growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana? Shreveport was an interesting place. I was born in late '69, so you know the whole civil rights movement uh, and the racial tensions in the South back then were just palpable. It was it was it, it was crazy. Um, and some of my f my greatest mentors in music black artists right. and, and some of my famous favorite musicians you know 
were as well. So I spent a lot of time, uh, I got to see it from a different perspective growing up there. And, you know, that's where the Louisiana Hayride was, where Elvis got his first big break and started. Uh, you know, James Burton is from there. Elvis is a guitar player and, and mm-hmm. it, uh, Lead Belly is buried there. It's just got a real rich musical uh, history and background, and you know, you're plus you're four hours from the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's where my grandparents live. So I would split time between both places uh, and spend summers over there with my grandparents and just literally soaking up the. Didn't I, I knew there was something magic about where I was living in my life. Uh, and and musically, it was just something going on. It was like something in the air. You could just feel it. So um, you, it was in a, you knew it at a young age. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew. I, I, I've as long as I remember, music was everything I, I ever want, loved and wanted to do. I just was beating on pots and pans at three, and my my uncle said, "You got to get him a drum set." My parents got me a little pawn shop thing, and I played that for ten years every day, all day long. When I wasn't at school, I was doing that, and they were like. Well, it looks like he's going to be a drummer. So I, I, it's just in me, you know. My my cousin is Mose Allison, the one, the artist who wrote Young Man Blues and Parchment Farm. He was a song blues pianist, songwriter uh, from Mississippi. So I've just got it in my family, you know. It's in the blood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were your parents musicians? Strangely enough, no, neither of them were. I've got it all around me, except they. None. Of, my dad compl- claims to play the accordion, but I never heard him play it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but they loved music, and my dad all. Mom and dad always supported me one hundred percent. I mean, I could play drums till ten o'clock at night above their bedroom in a in a jam room that they built for us. They were always supportive. They they did everything they could, and my dad had this awesome '70s hi-fi system, and was an audiophile. So he just, you know, he turned me on to everything from Fleetwood Mac to the Beatles, the e- the Eagles, everything to to uh, you know Buddy Rich big band stuff, and yeah. and that you know he just had a, loved everything, and you know played everything loud on the big speaker. So we had music playing, even though you know they weren't weren't musicians themselves. Sure, sure. What um what bands did you when you first found your way in your own music? What were you into? Well, you know, like I said, my all time favorites are from when I was a kid. And it's funny how that you you just take that with you your whole life. You know, like the Beatles. I mean, the Eagles and right. Fleetwood Mac and all that stuff. But what really crystallized it all for me was Kiss. I mean, I you know I yeah, was they, right at that age where it just got me. They, I was like, they get I remember, everybody. Yeah, I remember being a kid walking in the music store after we saw a movie at the mall and seeing Kiss Alive 2. And I was just like, what is yeah. that? And just taking it on and taking it home and putting it on. And my, my life changed, you know? Right. And then how, Crazy. Old, how old were you when you first got into a band situation? Uh, I, I started jamming with guys around the neighborhood when I was probably in sixth, seventh grade. You know, we would, we would, we knew, we knew it a few songs. We would jam like, Really played really bad versions of Pinball Wizard and Tom Sawyer and You Really Got Me. And that's kind of when it started, though. You know, we really started going, hey, man, bring your guitar over and let's let's do this. And then the magic starts. Then you're like, whoa, this is incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have that magic feeling of, of playing with somebody else and that synergy that you just can't get in any, any other way. You know, you're sharing the same magic with somebody else in the same room making making the magic. It's crazy. Yeah, what was the scene like in Shreveport? 
Shreveport always had an incredible, I mean, it was small. It was a small town. It's not very big. I mean, I don't even think there's a quarter million people there. There was just so much great blues going on all the time. And there was just great R&B and musicians. And um, there was just always music everywhere. It's Louisiana. So there's just, they're always celebrating something and they're always partying. So there was just always music in every creeping out of everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think it was an amazing place to, to, to be, to love music and to come up. Uh, you know, Kenny Wayne Shepherd came out of there. It's got right. a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of musicians. Danny Johnson was from there who played with Rod Stewart and Rick Derringer and Joe Osborne from the wrecking crew lived yeah. and died there. And right. Lots of lots. It's got a, like a real, really great rich musical uh, heritage about it. But Brady Blade, Brian Blade, the amazing jazz drummers from there. I grew up with the Blade brothers, both drummer brothers. And uh, yeah, it's just, it was amazing, man. It was an amazing school. Yeah. So what, you know, you started with drums, but you also play yep. bass and guitar. So yeah. When, when did that transition happen? You know, my brother got a guitar for Christmas and I would knock around with it, you know, and just decided to like kind of, oh, this is kind of fun too. I can make music on this. So I just, you know, just kind of picked up one, uh, you know, you kind of hit plateaus with music and you're like, okay, well, I'm kind of bored with the drums. Let me find, let me find out something else on the guitar. And then you kind of discover a whole new thing and just kind of add them to the arsenal, you know? Right. Plus, it's hard to write songs on drums. You know, you gotta you gotta have another tool to uh, create melody. Yeah, that's a little difficult. Yeah. Plus, you know, I I was one of those kids that before I got into multi tracking, I was I had two tape decks and an old little four track realistic uh, Radio Shack um, little mixer, and I would ping pong and record myself playing drums, and then play bass to it, and then play guitar to it, and bounce between the cassette decks. You know, until I had done it about six times and you could barely hear it, but I had like a multi-track <laughs> of me playing and I'm like, this is it, this is yeah. it. And now that's pretty much what I do for my living. So, you know, just don't have to use the, the realistic decks anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So you got into production early too then. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I was about in junior high, I, my dad got me one of those little four, first little, uh, cassette four tracks and it just was life changing. You know, I was the guy that would come over and, you know, like, let me record your band and, and and that was kind of like, hey, let me produce you without even realizing what, what that was, you know. Right. But I just loved that. Absolutely loved that. Yeah, that, that, that playing live and recording music equally have always been um, just two of my greatest loves. And as, as much as I love playing live, I've just kind of transitioned into being more of a homebody and studio rat. Um, mm-hmm. And that's completely fulfilling for me, you know, sure. because not only do I get to still produce and make albums i i get to play almost every instrument almost every day for some reason or other and i do my my i call it my day job is doing a lot of music for tv film and commercials mm-hmm. so i'm you know 95 percent of that gig is me playing all the instruments you know maybe i might have to if it's something that couldn't i need a shredder guy on i'm gonna call one of my shredder buddies and you know get them on it but yeah. i I'm, i kind of am getting fulfillment being a, because I have to play everything on almost every day, uh, wearing all the hats that uh, I don't feel like I'm missing out by not touring anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, um, do you have a studio at home? I do, I do. Okay. We moved out, out of Hollywood about 12 years ago, and uh, my wife's really big on the whole mid century modern architecture. And we found this crazy house built in the 50, 56, and you walk in and it looks like the Brady Bunch house, you know, it looks like you're yeah. in a time warp. 
and we were just like, oh my God, this is it. We're home. And it has a separate garage that we converted and I had a guy who builds studio come out and build it out. And nice. that's, that's my man cave, man. And I, I can rock in there pretty much any time and not bother anybody and nobody can, nobody bothers me. It's, it's really nice. You've probably been spending a lot of time in there during this pandemic, huh? Oh yeah. Well, you know, we, we started making another LA guns record in there. You know, we did the EP there, uh, two years ago, the Christmas EP they did. And then we figured, well, let's just do the album that way. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and Tracy was over and with his family in, uh, uh, Denmark. And so we said, well, let's just start passing ideas back and forth, um, sending files and, and one thing led to another. And we just eventually just started making a record like this. And now the record's done and we just mixed it and turned it in and it'll be out in the fall. But nice. yeah, I mean, it was all just everybody isolated and, um, and unfortunately because of the way the situation is, I just ended up having by default to play drums on it because, um, it was just, you know, everybody was so freaked out about going anywhere or having anybody over sure. that we just said, you know what, Tracy said, Hey man, you know, let's just, let's just do it this way. I, I played on that single, let it let you down. Mm -hmm. And he liked, he liked it the way it turned out. So, you know, I felt bad because I love Scotty Coogan's drumming and I love to be a uh, recordist while he plays because it's just awesome recording him. You know, he's, it's just awesome recording a pro like him that has such great feel and sound. Um, so it would have been fun, but you know, maybe ne the next record we'll be able to resume going about old school, you know? So you did the whole album? Yeah, I ended up doing the whole thing. I just made a record with Tracy and Michael Sweet called Sunbomb, and I played drums on yeah, that whole record. I heard and that. Mixed, I was going to get into and, that. Yeah, bit. mixed that. And so I think that's kind of what, by that, we just kind of literally just kind of transitioned to the next chapter. And it was like, well, now we need to do an LA Guns record. Here's all the demos. Let's just continue this process mm -hmm. that like we're doing it. And Phil set up a vocal booth at home, and uh, he would be sending us you know vocals and we just started working that way and johnny would cut bass over with sam from faster pussycat at hollywood and they'd send me the files and we just figured out a way to make it work i mean it wasn't the the, the best way um but it, we made it work and it's an incredible record i mean i i'm so proud to be a part of it and it's it really is amazing um isn't that awesome how you can do that nowadays just send files yeah. and make a record. Yeah, for you know, for all for all the pros and cons, you know, when you weigh out the digital era and and all the things that it has ruined, uh, like taking away record stores and bookstores right, and right. and a lot of culture and stuff like that, to be able to make you know, and royalties too, but to be able to make records like this, it's just it, to be a creative, you can be so free being creative and work with anybody you want. And if you really, you know, kind of pick the lock on it and figure out how to do it and how to really capture uh, real great energetic performances, when you do put them together, if you really are on the same page, you know, it sounds like you're in a room playing together. And I know people say, well, you can never replicate that. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But it's a whole different era, man. People are doing – people have been – uh, recording albums, you know, uh, overdubbing each part since the seventies. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's really no different. You know, it, to me, it's like, it, I, I don't care how you put the album together. If like, if the end result gives me the chills and it, and it's inspiring and people dig it 
you know, I know we like it and that's the most important thing. And it's a bonus if other people do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back. So you're in Shreveport and, yep. and you decided to leave there. Yeah. I knew, I always knew that I was going to move. Um, and when I was in high school, I, I tried to get out of school early, uh, but my parents were like, just finish your last year. You don't have to go to college. We know you're not going to go. My grades were so bad because all I loved to do was music. And, yeah. and I even had a fake ID in high school and I'd play gigs during the week and then come into school late. And I had that senior year where I was just like, you know, fall asleep on my desk and <laughs> I'd be making set lists up for the gig, the weekend gigs so I was just itching to get out of there and I thought I considered Nashville. I had some friends up in Nashville and I considered LA and New York, but I'm like, I just, it's just so overwhelming moving that far away. And so I moved, I actually ended up going to Austin for a few years and played down there and had a great time, met a lot of great people, played down on sixth street, got to absorb a whole different culture and scene. Mm -hmm. And then one night I was playing in a bar and CC from poison walks in. It was when they were on tour for their flesh and blood tour and he, we just kind of met each other. I went and talked to him and hit it off. And uh, he came and sat in with my band and we swapped out numbers. And he invited me to the show in Dallas. So I drove up to see him. And after the show, he pulled me on the bus after the show. And he goes, man, you know, I know it looks like uh, this. I'm at, we're in the top of the world. I mean, they had a top 10 album selling out arenas still. This was in the, you know, the, the, late early nineties. Right. He goes, but I'm just miserable. I'm ready to leave the band and do my own thing. And I want to start a solo band and I want you to be my drummer. And I was like, Oh my God, my, <laughs> my, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I had that moment where I go, Oh my God, this is the big break that they always talked about. But I always dreamed about having, you know, in my bed when I was wow. a kid, like getting discovered, Yeah. like just one day, you know, God, let me get discovered by somebody. And, and that, ha and that happened. Did he, and so, did he already let the band know he was not no, he no. wasn't. He okay. was just kind of plotting and planning and, mm -hmm. you know, as time went on, you know, things just deteriorated, deteriorated. And I think because of his unhappiness at the in the situation, you know, I think he was partying a lot, doing a lot of drugs, and that was making the situation deteriorate even sure. worse and even faster. And then I remember happen. Yeah, and I remember watching the, the MTV thing where he came out with pink hair and it was just a train oh, wreck that Arsenio Hall posted it. Yep, and I, I remember just remember that. going, I remember thinking to myself, this is the defining moment. Like he's done this, this is, this is it. And I literally got the phone call like, a couple of nights later and woke me up in the middle of the night. It turned out he had lost my number. That's why I didn't hear from him for like a year after this. And I kind of thought that year was kind of tough for me because, um, I was like, wow, maybe this wasn't my big break and I'm never going to hear from him again. And, and, you know, I just kind of said, oh, I kind of, by the time I kind of gotten over that and thought, well, maybe it just wasn't meant to be. And, you know, uh, my, the heart, the disappointment of that, when I'd kind of gotten through that, all of a sudden the phone rang and he goes, I've lost your number. And I had to call, I tracked your mom and dad down in Shreveport and woke him up at four in the morning and got your new number. Uh, <laughs> so he, yeah, it's crazy. So he got my number and flew me out to California that weekend and, Game of the Royal Treatment, you know, I had a car pick me up at the airport, drive me up to the top of the Hollywood Hills, you know, the big, huge rock star mansion. And I just, it was. Were you pinching the most, yourself the whole time? It, it, it was one of the, it was one of the most surreal out of body experiences, you know, you could have. You're just a little kid, you know, from a small town dreaming of doing this and just like, here's your dream on a silver platter. Welcome, welcome to Hollywood, kid. Yeah. And they were still huge, and he was living at the top of the hill next to Burt Reynolds and Diana Ross, and it was just like, uh, 
I was just pin- I pinched myself for that like that six months. It was crazy. Have it you, was crazy. Were you ever in a big city like that before then? Never, never. I'd wow. never been to New York or LA or anywhere like that. You know, I'd been to Dallas, Texas, New Orleans, and that's about as you know. I lived in Austin and San Antonio. That was about as far. It, it was it was you know oh, over oh, overwhelming, but in a good way. Wow. So, you know, we, but when I finally moved out to, to play with him, you know, it would just be like one day the Bullet Boys are coming over. The next day, Steve Lukather's coming by to hang. Then the Motley Crue guys. And then Sam Kennison's coming to hang out one night. And we were literally like partying all night with Sam Kennison, walking around the house singing opera and just telling <laughs> jokes. And, Sounds and, like Ron a Jer- and Ron Jeremy's coming over. And it was just like one after another. It was just, it was, it was just, it made your head spin. But then I remember after a few months of this, we had practiced every day. We were trying to write songs. We really weren't coming up with too much great stuff because there was just a lot. It was just our nights and days were flipped. We, we slept all day and we jammed at this, in this huge mansion all night and partied and didn't get a lot done. And then some, some early evenings and days we'd do a photo shoot for magazines or for, he'd do some press. And well, it just, we kind of rode that wave as long as we could. And then a deal never never nobody pulled the trigger on signing him and we just couldn't make it happen and then i remember it started raining really hard one day and it rained for almost two weeks straight and it was the torrential uh uh el nino that happened that yeah. year and i remember it was so depressing and things weren't happening and we were just like what's going on and i remember sitting in his house watching the uh, mtv and Nirvana came on. Smells Like Teen Spirit came on. And we were both like, whoa, look at these guys. And we were tripping out on Dave Grohl and how great a drummer he was, which is a monster. Yeah. And I remember having this moment. It was this defining, another defining moment where I'm like, whoa, this is the new school. And the Poison stuff is, is the old chapter. And I remember seeing that chapter, that page in the book, turning right then and there. Yeah. And I remember seeing like, CeCe's like the old guard and Dave Grohl and Nirvana are the new guard. And I yeah. just remember seeing it get ushered in before my eyes. And and what was really cool was being aware enough and to acknowledge that because I was young enough to love all that stuff too. I mean, grunge wasn't my favorite, but I loved, you know, rock and roll and music. And I, I loved how chimes would change. And, you know, I never got stuck in the 80s. You mm-hmm. know, I, I loved all that stuff. But listen, I was an early 80s kid. I loved the Buggles and, yeah, you know, yeah. Gary Newman. All that stuff was my favorite music when that was happening. Then the 80s came and that was my favorite music. And then this came and that. Was my, and so I just changed with the times and, and loved what was happening um, along with it. I just kind of grew and evolved with the times. But I remember having that defining moment where I go, you know what? I I love him, but he's he's probably going to die if he keeps partying like he's doing. And things are not working out. We're not going to get a deal. We're just kind of spinning our wheels. And it was just a sign. It rained two weeks in L.A. and it was flooding. And I just called my mom and dad and I go, I think I need to come home for a break. And they go, yeah, come on. We'll fly you home. So they got me a ticket. And I got my stuff and I got out of there. And I just knew, all right, I got I to gotta like regroup. And I went home for a couple of months and just said, you know what? I want to go back to L.A. Probably not going to play with him, but but I want to go out there to stay. And it just having done that with him gave me the confidence to do that. I met a lot of contacts, got my picture in the magazines, and I could call up Jerry Miller at Metal Ledge and say hi, and she knew who I was. Right. She'd take my call, and I'd say, hey, I'm getting ready to move back to L.A. Will you help me find a gig? And she's like, I know a band right now that's looking for a drummer that would be great for you. And she put me together with that band Shake the Faith, which was Kenny Queens from Beautiful Creatures – 
uh, Tommy Thayer, who obviously is in mm-hmm. Kiss now, who was in it. Um, Dave Aragon, who was in it. He was from that show Pimp My Ride uh, on MTV. And they were this great band, and they were getting ready to change their name, and the drummer was going to do something else. And sh- so literally I talked to them on the phone, and they – that you know, they saw some pictures in the magazine of me, and they were like, "This is this is their drummer. This is it. If he can play, he's going to be." So I literally moved out to L.A. with a gig. It was great, and I moved in. I moved my stuff out a few minutes later, months later, moved in with my Phil, friend Phil Buckman, who's an actor and he does a lot of voiceovers. He he was also a musician too. He played in uh, Filter for a while and Fuel okay. for a while. Mm-hmm. He does the voice for Carl's Jr. He's like, you know, the Carl's Jr. Da, 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 da. Tons <laughs> of voices. We hear him every day and we always laugh, but he's a great friend of mine. Met him back during the CC days and he's like, come move into my guest house. So I immediately had a place to live. I had a gig and it wasn't so overwhelming like moving out to LA and like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I right, immediately right. Plugged, plugged in with all these people and met friends through them uh, and met friends through the band. And that's and then I, you know, that was 25 years ago, and I've been here ever since. But that's kind of how I got out to LA. That's the long and short of it. So you were kind of not only did you have the talent clearly, but you were kind of in the right place at the right time when CC walked yeah. in. Yeah. Oh man, listen. There's there, you know, there's so many theories to to things. You know, you obviously have to to, to work hard and and practice and do all that stuff to to get prepared for when your opportunities happen. And, you know, they say it part of it's luck and part of it's this. It's just it's it's a little bit of everything, but you got to be prepared. And I think I realized that, look, there's a million people. There's 10 million people more talented than I am, but there may be 10 million people that I that I have more skill too. So you yeah. just I just kind of started to realize that there's plenty of work for everybody. There's a gig for everybody. You'll find your right person, people. You'll find your right thing. You just have to get in the right place. Um and try to be cool, man. You know, try to be cool with people. Be a good person. Uh, yeah, and do the the best you can, and try to be stand by your word and have integrity, and and uh, and and realize that there's a lot of flakiness in L.A. And I realize why that is. It's it's you know everybody's hustling out here. People are not out here to just like make a life and have friends, and yeah. you know because of the weather. You know, people are out here. This is an industry town, and people are hustling and. People aren't going to mess around, um, and opportunities happen every second of every day if you keep your eyes open. I mean, I was in between gigs and just went to see. I would go to the the Viper Room like Monday nights and see whoever was playing, and knew a lot of people who worked there, and used to hang out around there. And and uh, I, out from the the exit comes um, Blue Saracino. And I said, hey, man, I ended up meeting him. He was super cool, and we kind of hit it off. And I said, hey, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm still doing the Poison gig. And I said, well, listen, if you ever want to do a side band doing something kind of different, let's do it. And so we started a band together, and you know, we lasted about like six months and never really played out or did much. But there you go. Be, put yourself in the right place at the right time. You see an opportunity, and you know. Be ready. I was, Yeah. I mean, I remember one night I was at the Viper Room hanging out, and uh Billy Idol jumped up there and was singing with the band the cover band that was playing and I got uh, able and he said does anybody know the song like the the guitar player didn't know it and I jumped up there and they gave me the guitar and I got to play for like a half a half hour of Billy Idol stuff with Billy Idol and no way that's that's the kind of stuff that that happens when you just put yourself up there and you don't hesitate and think about oh should I do this should I should I raise my hand? That'll you just kill you. Don't think about. It. Yeah, that's when somebody will just jump over your, you know, jump over and grab, 
grab the opportunity. You can't think about it. You just have to jump out there and be willing to fail and, and be willing and uh, willing to fall on your face. But that's when great things happen. And, you know, as well as, you know, I always had faith in God and I'm like, listen, just put me where you want me, when you want me and, you know, help me do the right things. And, yeah. and, uh, that's where I, and, and, you know, it's f- so funny, you know, it seems like life is so, I, I love the saying that, uh, Joe Walsh, I, I can't quote him verbatim, but, um, he said it in that Eagles documentary. He's like, you know, life is so crazy and it just seems like chaos things, one thing happening, you know, banging into this thing happening and this thing. And, and it just seems like such a chaotic mess sometimes and then you look back at your life when you get a little older and it looks like a finely crafted novel how one thing led to another it led yeah, to this true. and then it led to this and it's just like fantastic you know to be able to have a little bit of that perspective now i'm 51 and to go wow it really is crazy it really is you ever think of writing a book yeah, you know, I always think about that, and then I'm like, oh, it would be great for 20 people to <laughs> You'd probably be surprised. It, but, but, you know, I, I definitely, you know, have have uh, been blessed with a lot of amazing experiences in working with everybody. You know, I've pretty much either met or worked with everybody that I've ever dreamed about working with um, in some way, shape, or form. So it would, it would certainly be a labor of love to do that. Absolutely. So when so when you told CC you were leaving, was he yeah up, upset about that or no he wasn't he understood he, he knew he completely understood and and you know when I came back out I went up to see him at the house and when he opened the door he was in such bad shape that I'm like this guy really is like days from death yeah. and I just felt so bad my heart hurt so much for him when I saw him in that condition and. You know, we hung out for a little bit, but he wasn't even capable of like really talking much or having a a, a jam or anything. And I just left there going, man, I, that might be the last time I saw I see him. Yeah. But thank God yeah. it wasn't. He managed to get out of that and and get healthy. And he and I reconnected, and, and we've we've kind of had an off and on thing for the last twenty five years, where I won't talk to him for a few years, and then we'll chat and. Something will come up and, you know, he did a record with Poison, a cover record years ago, and he asked me to come in and help him, like, bring some gear and help him get tones. And I ended up just going and assisting on that that whole album, which was amazing. With Don was producing and, you know, done it at A&M, which is Hanson Studios, and, you know, it was an amazing experience. And then, you know, a few years will go by and I won't talk to him, and then we'll reconnect again. So it's been an amazing thing, and I've, I've gotten to really tell him how much I appreciated him giving me my first big break and believing in me and mentoring me. And it's, it's, yeah. he's, he, yeah, he was the guy that, that kind of, you know, opened the door to, to, to give me the confidence to come in because when I, he was a guy who was like, you got it, you got it, kid. You got it. And, <laughs> and, and that's when somebody like that, that's, a, that's done it, gives you that confidence, man, you know, yeah, it's it's what you need. You and you have to have that naivete, being young and just dumb enough to just believe it and just go for it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't ha- it doesn't happen for that many many people when you when you think of how many people in this world that would love to do this, the things that we're doing, and really how many people that that don't get the opportunity. It's like man, it's it's a slim few that do. It's it's crazy. And then to be able to make a living doing what you love to do is man it's everything it's like how blaine says man when you love your work it's not work it's not work it's just what you love you know 
So what what happened to the what was the name of the band that you moved back out for? Shake uh, Shake the Faith. Well, Shake the Faith changed their name to Number Nine. They were kind of going in a little different direction musically. Uh, that just kind of disintegrated after maybe three months. You know, it's like the, the keeping a band together is so hard. You know, it's like yeah. it's like trying to date four or five different girls. It just doesn't right. work. You know, right. man, everybody's got a different agenda. Everybody wants to do something different. It's just so hard, and it just kind of fell apart. Um, and then I got a gig with a band. Uh, I love this song back in the early '90s on the radio. And I never knew what the name of it was or the band. And this was prior to the internet, so you couldn't really find out. You would just have those songs. That were like, oh, I love that song. I never knew who did it. I got a uh, – how did I get that? Remember? Oh, yeah. I, my buddy was in a band – is in a band called Better Than Ezra from uh, okay. Louisiana. Yep. And his name's Tom Drummond. And I played some gigs with Tom when we were in high school. And so Tom had my number, and I, I called back to Louisiana because I heard Better Than Ezra might be looking for a new drummer. And I was out of a gig at the time. And Tom said, well, I think we found a guy out in L.A. and he's moving back here, but I'll keep you posted. But he was playing with a band that was signed to Warner Brothers now, and so they may need a drummer. And I'm like, ooh, they got a deal? This sounds interesting. Well, they I, they call me up and they said, hey, we hear you're you know, we're auditioning drummers. We want to know if you'd be interested in auditioning. They, I said, yeah, and they sent their tape over. And I got their tape with the first song on that tape was that song that I loved on the radio and I didn't know who it was. And I'm like, whoa, talk about this is like serendipitous. So, so you this didn't is, know it was that band. Didn't know it was oh, the band. Wow. That's, they were called God's Child and the song was called Everybody's One. And it was a minor al- alternative hit in 94 and uh, or 93 maybe. I can't remember what the year was, but it's just an amazing song. Um, and they still had their deal with Warners and they were putting out a new record. So I literally got, learned the songs, went down to the audition, Got the gig, and I was on the road touring with them for, and was with them for like five or six years, um, and it was an amazing experience. And it was the first time I'd have been on a with a band that was signed to a major label and got to experience all that. And it was the time where No Doubt was breaking and Three Eleven and Lit. It was that era of of the nineties, and we toured and played with all of those bands, uh, just you name them, and we played with them. And it was great, but unfortunately, that band we we couldn't really get another uh, get anything else going at radio with a single, mm-hmm. and so you know it, it it it's like everything. Everything has its time, and that was that had its run. And then I through that process, though, I had met uh, a guy named Muddy, and Muddy was this amazing producer and engineer. He looked like a young Jimmy Page, Leprechaun kind of guy, <laughs> just magical and fun and. totally funny and a brilliant musician and so we started hanging out and just loved loved this my new friend and so he calls me up one night and he goes hey listen come up to this house in the hollywood hills there's a studio here here's the address i'm producing a band and i need you to come up and play drums they're literally carrying their drummer out because he passed out he's drunk and studio time is is expensive you know and and i said what are they calling he said the brian jonestown massacre and so i'd never heard of these guys and they were still like unknown and i walk in and there's this band that looks like straight out of 1960 you know 70s just scarfs and long hair they just look like san francisco it was like a time warp and they literally carrying the drummer out as I'm walking in, and they're like, "Hey, thanks for coming." And so I, I'm like, "Well, play me the song." So I put on the headphones, I get comfortable behind the drum kit, and 
we literally worked the song out in like 20 minutes and we did a take and I got the, we got the first take and it was this really psychedelic tripped out song and they've gone on to become like a pretty well-known cult band. Uh Um, but at the time they were just had a little deal. Nobody knew how knew knew of them. And, uh, they were just amazing. And what was great about them was it was really rough around the edges. It felt like it could all fall apart at one moment. Yeah. I mean, there was a ta- Joel played tambourine. There was a tambourine guy. That's all he did was play tambourine. It was just magical. It was like you were, you know, it was just like going back and, and hanging out at Brian Jones's house and just jamming with, with really, really cool guys, just feeling the vibe, closing your eyes, no click track. And I made that record with them, and it was this incredible experience. And I never played with guys like that, you know, that were just really like living it and yeah. free and just really psych- the psychedelic scene. And so they asked me to play on their next record, and you know, one thing leads to another. And then they asked me to, to that was called Strung Out in Heaven. Um, and at the time, unfortunately, they named that because it was it was a real problem with the band. Mm. And if you've ever seen that, uh, there's a music doc called Dig, and it's about them and the Dandy Warhols. And it all takes place during the making of that album. And they made it in this house up in Echo Park where they had a studio, but there was just a lot of junky madness going on. And uh, it was it was a dark scene, but it was an amazing creative musical scene. And, you know, they're trying to film this documentary and the Denny Warhols are up there and we're trying to make this record and Muddy's producing that record and it's quite a doc. You gotta see it. Muddy quits the quits the the, it's called Dig, D I G. Uh and it's just a a fascinating scene, you know, totally different than I had ever experienced. And then after we finished that record, you know, they were trying to kind of sober up enough to go on tour. This was going to be their their record that was going to break them out. And it turned out to be the one to help them, you know, take it up to the next plateau. It was kind of the record that they started to be get, get known on. Um, and they asked me to join the band. And that's like, mm, I don't know if I should do this. This is, this is jumping off into like deeper water than I'm uh, equipped to deal with. Yeah. Um, I, I love there was a lot of seductive elements to it i love the danger of this could all fall apart at any time but if you see the documentary you realize that it literally all falls apart almost every night and band the band will literally get in fistfights with the band on stage and beat each other up and it was just it was too it was too real for me so i I just you know i knew that it was probably best that i just said guys i'll hook, i'll f- help you find a drummer and i helped them find somebody and yeah. they went up went on and they did great you know and one of the guys w- then went on to do another band called black rebel motorcycle club and uh came out of that whole scene and he had a lot of success his name was peter and he was one of the guitar players and they're just amazing they're still doing it anton is, is just yeah anton is just genius man people that lo- know and love that band just absolutely love them but it's very shambolic and really psychedelic you know you know take a little smoke a little pot and listen to one of their records and it's just a trip it's yeah. crazy what, um, what year was this and this was probably 96 maybe somewhere around there my my ability to recall years i'm i'm bad with years and stuff like that but yeah, it was, no worries or it was it was like mid mid 90s maybe later maybe 97 something around then and is that what because you joined LA Gun shortly? Yeah, after so that, that's right? so you know how once again how one thing leads to another. Um, I get a call from Muddy um, 
a, a, maybe a year later, Muddy had joined LA Guns and was playing bass with them. And so I would keep up with him and say, hey, how's the road? I'm going to come see you here. And uh, Knew he was having a great time. Well, after about a year of doing this, Muddy had hooked up with Gilby Clark and Slim Jim Phantom from the, Rolling, from, uh, the Straight Cats. And they decided to start a band. And they had a band called Colonel Parker. And so Muddy is like, I got to leave LA Guns. And he called me up and he goes, hey, man, I know you're you're mainly a drummer, but I know you play bass. Would you want to play bass with other guns? And I'm like, oh, my God, of course I would. That would be amazing. So he said, don't worry, I'm going to get you the gig. So he made some calls and got me an audition and I went down and played with him. And it was magic. Once again, it was just one of these magic scenes where I'm like, this is incredible. You know, my life is just one thing after another. And so it turns out they didn't actually want me to audition because they were a little miffed at Muddy for bailing on him when they did, right. when he did. Uh, so they're like, well, we're not going to have his buddy, you know. So he, they said, you know, no, we'll find somebody else. Well, Muddy, they tried to find somebody else and they didn't find anybody they liked. So they called Muddy back and like, what's your buddy's <laughs> name? What's his number? So begrudgingly, they had me in. But the minute we played and we hung out, we knew like, this is perfect. And they offered me the gig. So was this um, where the original guys were in there, right? At that time, it was all the original band except for the bass player. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was pretty cool getting to play with the classic lineup guys. Yeah. Um, and we, we got to tour that record called man in the moon, which was amazing. Went out and played with everybody from, you know, rat to dock to warrant to whoever. Did, did you do that whole tour? I did that whole tour with them. Yep. I and wonder, we may have met. I, we I, might have, I met, yep. I went, um, I did an interview with Steve Riley on the bus yep. in St. Petersburg, yeah, we, Florida, one time. We, pro- yeah, we probably did. We That's probably funny. did. Um, and during that tour, we would, you know, on the bus and at sound checks, we would jam songs, and we started to kind of start to pull together some material, and that ended up becoming the material for the album "Waking the Dead." So when we got back off tour, that was the next project we worked on, and it turned out we had some pretty heavy songs. It was kind of going a little bit heavier than Man in the Moon. And, uh, we found out through – I can't remember how we found out, but we found out that Andy Johns was actually available and we might possibly be able to, to get him to produce us. And so you know, being the Led Zeppelin fanatics that, that you know the band is, we were just like, we'll do whatever it takes. We want to work yeah. with him. And so we made a few calls and figured out the budget and figured out that, that he agreed to work with us for the budget we had to work on it and it was incredible you know it was like talk about going to the old school and learning from the you know getting it right out of the horse's mouth you know like well this is how jimmy did it and this is how bonham you know set this up and this is what we used and these are the mics i was literally a sponge i would literally sit there with my notebooks and just ask yeah, him i was gonna say being questions a producer, yeah like, you must have loved yeah. that I was like, this is this is my college. I never went to school, but this is my school. I'm getting schooled right now. And I was at least aware enough to know that and to take advantage of that. And, you know, I just ap- apologized to Andy one time. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, bugging you with all the, the, the nuts and bolts of how to do this. But this is what I love to do. And he goes, listen, and he's like, that's how we learn, my boy. You know, <laughs> and he was just as kind and grace, gracious and just brilliant, man. You know, just learning to make records from the guy who recorded, you know, Led Zeppelin and Eric Clapton yeah. and Van Halen and the Rolling Stones and on and on and on. And it was just amazing, man. He was just an amazing guy and his family was beautiful. And we would go hang out and have barbecues over there with 
them and Roy Thomas Baker and all sorts of crazy other producers and people. And it was uh, another magic chapter, you know, yeah, in my yeah. life that I got to be blessed with. And losing him was tough. We made three records with him. And actually, the band was working on a fourth, but I had left the band at that point. But how, that how, Hollywood, many, how many albums did you do? I did uh, I three, three or four. I did three or four with him. And then we had about six come out, like compilations yeah. and live records and this and that and the other. So about maybe seven. There was probably seven albums that came out of my tenure with them. Yeah, I okay. think so. But yeah, I, got, I had also gotten to the point too where um, you know Tracy had gone off to do the Bride to the Destruction with with um, Nikki Six, Six. Mm-hmm. and you know when he went off to do that, he was like, "Listen, man, you know we're going to be off the road for a few months. I've been talking with Nikki, and I really want to do this. Will you help me put this together?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, of course I will. This is this is going to be another magic experience." <laughs> right. and so we got off the road and he and Nikki had been talking and they've been trade, you know, exchanging ideas and stuff. And I knew LA guns was, was going to be down for a few months. So we got together and Tracy and I, um, were trying to, I was trying to help them find a singer. And so I was like, refracting my brain. Like who would be a good singer for them? Who would be a good singer? So I remember going to get my hair cut one day down on Melrose and the guy who cut my hair is named London. And he had the greatest look, just looked like a rock star. And I said, Hey man, you you sing right? He goes, yeah. I used to have a project. I did some stuff with George Lynch, and I'm like, I might have a possible gig for you. And so I literally took a Polaroid of him. We took it over to Tracy's. I showed him. He sent it to Nikki, and <laughs> Nikki six. He called him. He goes, I don't care if this guy can sing or not. He's in the band. He looks so cool. <laughs> that sounds it was like Nikki. Total. I know, right? Total classic Nikki six, right? So. Right. So I take my recording gear over to Tracy's one Saturday and we set up in the living room and we were like, okay, we got to do something to where like an audition for, for London so we can hear him sing. So we did a sweet song, just Tracy and I, and Tracy played guitar and bass and I played the drums and it turns out sounding really great. And, um, so London came over that afternoon and sang it and he was amazing. He was fantastic. And so Tracy, we did a little mix and he called Nikki up and Nikki came over a couple hours later and listened to it. And it was cool. I was like, okay, he, he's, I'm watching them, this thing crystallize right before me. And this is pretty cool. But at the same time, you know, uh, I was kind of like, well, what's going to happen with LA guns? You know, I was, it was just kind of, everything was in a state of flux, but yeah. it was, but it was really fun helping them, helping to facilitate watching them put it together but I knew they already had a drummer. They had Chris Colds from that band, Edema. He was going to be their drummer. So I'm like, well, that's their band. And Tracy would say, well, maybe you'll play keyboards or maybe you'll play second guitar. Or maybe there's a place in this for you. So I said, well, you know what? I'll just keep my options open. So yeah. I had a buddy who had a rehearsal studio down in Santa Monica, and I hooked them up with that. And he got them a room, a lockout room for a year. So they loaded in there, and Chris Coles was still on tour with Edema. So – for the first couple of weeks, uh, I would play drums, and me and Nikki and Tracy would jam. We jam like old Motley, and we jam old LA Guns and Free. And w- what's really cool was Nikki hadn't played a lot of those Motley Crue songs in a lot of time, a lot in a long time. And I would literally like show him some of the lines. I'm like, "No, this <laughs> this is what you played." And he goes, "Oh man, Teach I completely forgot that." Yeah, so like I, I actually, you know, knew some of them that he had forgotten. So that was a, a story for the ages yeah. as well. But, um, you know, and I think John Karabi came down for a little bit and played a little bit and they considered having him in the band, you know, before it all kind of 
really crystallized, and it turned out Chris Chris Coles um, wasn't wasn't going to do it. He was going to stay with Edema, and so that's when they got Scott Coogan. So it just worked out that Coogan was right time, right place, and he was the perfect guy for it. And then then I found I got a call from Steve Riley, and he said. Ellie Guns is going to go to Europe. We got a tour um, opening for uh, for uh, Alice Cooper over in Europe, and I had never nice. been to Europe. And I was like, "Look, I don't have a permanent home in this thing. This thing is not taking off at, at, at any time soon. I'm not making any money from it. Uh, I've never been to Europe. I really wanted to go, and I just said I got to do it. So yeah. everybody was like, "Of course." So. Um, we had had Brent Muscat from Faster Pussycat mm-hmm. filling in for a while and, and Carrie Kelly for a while, but no, nobody was really planned to be. You know, really, it was just kind of going to be a sabbatical for, for for Tracy to do the band with Nikki, and then Tracy was going to come back. That was the whole plan. Yeah. That was what everybody was planning. Um, and so we went to Europe, and it was amazing. It was everything I ever dreamed about. And more, and we just had a fantastic time. And by that time, though, um, yeah, Carrie Kelly and and Brent Muscat went on that tour. They, so we had a five piece at that point. Um, and you and were then, playing bass at this time, and I was playing bass. Okay. Yeah, I was playing bass for Ellie Guns. And so then uh, we came back from that tour and just kind of toured around the country for the next year or two. And uh, when I would come home off the road. I would get calls from different companies about needing songs for different projects. And they were like, Hey, we have this movie. We're looking for this song. So that was kind of my day gig. You know, I'd, I'd come back and maybe produce a band or work with some friends band, um, in the studio while we'd be off and I'd get to do some songs for TV and film or a video game or something. Uh, or we did a chips Ahoy commercial, me and my buddy, Chris Seafried. Um, so I, I always had this great duality is like, I get to go, be rock star and and get to pay doing what I love to do, and then I get to come home and I get to do all the other side of it. So it was just yeah. a brilliant balance that I was being uh, able to uh, experience. But at some point, I kind of started to feel like, you know, I'm just. I kind of felt like I'd been in Ellie Guns a long time. Tracy wasn't coming back. There was kind of this rift. He'd started his own Ellie Guns, and I just kind of felt like. I'm, I'm, I'm not digging it as much. I love the guys. It's nothing personal, but I was just digging the studio. And, and one of the things that kind of, there were two things that kind of cinched the deal for knowing that it was time for me to make a move was I was missing out on a lot of movie projects. I was getting mm. a call and, and I couldn't do it because I'm like, I'm not going to be back for three weeks. And they're like, oh, well, we got to go with somebody else. And I'm like, this this sucks, man. Well, I, I mean, would imagine I just, that's where the money is too, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I had just had a song in that the first Born Identity movie with uh, Matt Damon, you know. So I'm yeah. like, well, this is great. Then I can't I can't miss these opportunities, you know. I just can't miss when Woody Allen needs a song for a movie, and he's you know he used one of my songs, and now he wants another one of my songs for another one of his movies, and yeah. missing out on those kind of opportunities. I'm like, listen. I'm, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I, I want to do this, and I, I ended up hooking up with a producer manager who was like, you know, my one of my, you know, managed a lot of my producer heroes. And he goes, "Listen, if you're going to do this, you you got to be available. And you got to be around." And I was like, "You're right. That's that's." He kind of made the decision for me, and so I told the guys. They totally understood. They they gave me their their blessing, and I just, you know, decided that's what I was going to do. And that's when I just kind of veered off that path and, and said, my life is now going to be in the studio. 
And it has been ever since, except for, um, you know, a couple of months, uh, a couple of years ago where I, I went on tour with LA Guns and filled in on rhythm guitar before uh, Ace joined the band. Yeah. I did a, an American run and did a, um, a European run with him. But, you know, I hadn't – and I'd always stayed friends and, and with Phil. I mean, Phil and I always worked on stuff. Uh, we were always doing different projects. He, uh, he and his wife were always coming over and hanging out. We were family. Yeah. But I hadn't really spent a lot of time with Tracy over the years because he was kind of doing his own thing and we just didn't see her talk. But it was really cool when when that all came back together and, you know, they decided, listen, Phil and Tracy mended the fence and they, they realized that – it was it was better together. They're stronger together and worth more. Uh, and they missed one another, and they figured out how to make it work. Um, so I, I definitely jumped at the chance to work with those guys again. You know when that when that was uh, uh, offered to me, what and, you, and what, had a great time doing it. What do you think about the two LA guns? I think it's terrible. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's it's you know it's it's. Listen, you know, Kelly Nichols was offered the job as bass player in Primarily Guns many, many times. And he mm-hmm. took it for a week and then bowed out. And then he was offered it again a year later. And he just, you know, the timing wasn't right. Well, you you know, timing has to happen when it, when it happens. And, you know, it just, it's, I don't like it. It's terrible. You know, yeah. it's hard enough in this, in this uh, world, in this economy uh, to make it as, you know, it's just diluting the brand. It's yeah, I hate terrible. to see that. And you know, there's so many yeah. other bands that do that same thing, and it's like, yeah, man. it's it just makes it just makes things look look. It's, it's a bad look for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you did some now somewhere along the line, you filled in for Doc in a little bit. Yeah, that was one of the right before um, we came off that last tour in LA, and and Tracy started working with Nikki's on Brides. We played the last – that was a tour we did. It was that Metal Edge 2002 summer tour, and it was Dokken and Warrant and Rat and us and Firehouse. And uh, we had done the whole summer, one of the most fun tours with everybody on the tour was just a blast. Just the, the greatest guys. We just had so much fun listening to each other's set the whole night. It was a great tour. And then we finally got to the last show in Phoenix, and Mick, that's where Mick Brown lives. Yeah. And I think I remember the story. He got home, something happened, and he just said, "That's it. I'm I'm done. I'm not playing the show." Uh, and so I remember hearing them talking with Bobby Blotzer, and they're saying, "Well, listen, we we don't want to cancel tonight. We're gonna have to do it." Well, I knew the whole docking show backwards and forwards, you know, on drums, bass, or guitar, because <laughs> I just. Yeah, I knew, you know, I loved Dawkins. I loved the songs. After three months of hearing it every single night, I could t- I could play it to you, you know, one arm tied behind my back. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of went on the bus and I'm like, hey, listen, if you if you guys don't want to cancel this, I I'll do the show for you, and I I'm confident enough to tell you, I think we, I'll do a good job. So we had a little little like quick impromptu little jam session, and they are like, yeah, let's do it. And I ended up getting to play a show with them, and it was incredible. You know, it went off without a hitch, and it was the last show of the tour, and. Tracy came out and played, and Janie Lane came out and sang, and uh, you know all the Rat guys came out. Warren D. Martini got came out and jammed, and it was just you know one of these giant, great ways to end the tour. And I got to to get them through their last night, and it was yeah. it was cool, man. It was another, and I have it on film, which is great. So it was another one of those moments of of like you know like the video of the Who you know playing, and Keith Moon passes out. Like, can anybody play drums? And the guy jumps up there and plays. Well, it was like that. It was pretty cool. And it was really funny to have Don Dockin turning around after every song going, 
whoa, this is cool. And, and he just kept getting more confident as the set went because he saw that like, like I actually know this pretty good and I'm really a drummer. And I don't think he realized that, that he just knew me as the bass player for Ellie Guns yeah, who yeah. played drums. But I was really a drummer who just played Guns and Ellie Guns. So it was kind of vice versa. So That's it, funny. Was, it, was a, it was kind of a, a fun, surprising thing to get to do. You know? yeah. And I actually went out and played a... a Got called to do another couple of gigs with them through the years uh, to pitch pitch hit when Mick couldn't do it. But uh, and one of them ended up the whole band got sick and Mick was at the hospital and couldn't play. And I they flew me out and to Salt Lake City. And by the time I got there, the whole band had gotten sick and they had to cancel the show in the, oh, in the end. And I flew back and I got sick the next day, uh, so they just passed it around. And thanks, but, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was fun getting to know them, and now I've been friends with John Levin from, since then, and he's just the greatest guy, and he lives right out in Woodland Hills, and, that, and we're friends with them. It's just they're great, great yeah. people, man. I love all of them. As a drummer, I mean, I, to know all the songs, I mean, I guess it's probably a lot easier than guitar or bass, even because with guitar and bass, you have to know. Yeah, you have to kind of know the song. Drums, you yeah. could probably get away with a lot, can't you? I think so. Yeah, yeah, you can. You know, I think if you're a strong, confident enough drummer, you know, you you can. You know, I mean, listen, you drop a stick, you know, you can. You still got another hand going to to be able to keep the beat going. I think it's there's a little bit more. Um, you have a little bit more give and leeway. Yeah, in it. absolutely. I don't think I would have been as confident if if the bass player that night had in, and had to get up and play the bass. I think I probably maybe could have pulled it off. But I, I certainly wasn't like I'm ready. I could do this. Let me let me add them yeah. uh, like I did with the drums because drums were always my number one instrument, and I'm always more confident at that than than anything else. Just because that's what I've been doing the longest. So if you were going to play in a band again, you would prefer it to be drums. Yeah, I think so. But uh, man, you got to be in shape to play an hour and a yeah. half on drums, and I'm a little older now, <laughs> and I do. <laughs> I'll do a three three and a half minute song, one take, and I'm like, Oof, boy, I need to I need to start. <laughs> Start uh, getting my cardio go up Get again. on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need a Peloton for sure. It's <laughs> so, funny. So, so after playing, you got into producing, which you like yep. you said you're doing now. Um, yep, yep. I came back and I, after after I just kind of made the decision to, to get in the studio. I remember having coffee with Brian Pereira from Cleopatra Records, and we had kind of become friends, started hanging out. And Brian said, "Listen, you know." I, I, I like uh, I heard something you produced for us, and it, before I even knew you a couple of years ago, it was for Great White, and it sounds really good, and I really loved it. I'd like to get you on some other stuff, and I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Listen, I'll I'll keep you working if you you know want to work," and I'm like, "Let's do it." And yeah. you know, they've kept me busy for the last 15 years now, you know, wow. from project to project. And when I you know like like we were talking about, I always loved different styles of music. And, and it's rare for anybody who is a music producer to get to work in different styles of music. You know, Quincy Jones always said, you can't categorize music. That musicians need to be able to play what they feel like playing. If, if a yeah. producer, you know, he he worked with so many different artists, but producers get pigeonholed into it's like, you're, you're a metal guy or you're a country guy or you're yeah, a this. Yeah. And, you know, I understand the need to categorize, but I also hate that because like, I love different styles of music. I love getting to work with different artists and different bands. And the cool thing about the label that, that I do most of the work for is, you know, I've gotten to produce everybody from, you know, um, missing persons, to Berlin, some eighties kind of, you know, stuff like that to a vanilla ice record to a William Shatner to a 
David Hasselhoff, you know, like, and everything in between, just strange and wonderful stuff that just go in all sorts of different directions. And I get to make music in that, you know, we did a blues record, you know, but I, I grew up playing blues and love it. I don't get uh, often, you know, with William Shatner, I don't often get a chance to make blues records. So that was really cool. Uh, did did uh, to, Cleopatra hook you up with uh, William yeah, Shatner? Yeah, that's that's how I ended up getting to work with work with him and know him. Was was I got a call from Brian one day and he said, "Hey, we have a I think we have a potential project that I want you to produce, and I think you're going to find it really interesting." He's like, "I got a meeting next Tuesday, and I want you to be there with me. It's with William Shatner." And I'm like, "Oh man, <laughs> this is going to be fun." And so we just went and sat down and talked with him. And I loved his, his album, The Has Been Record. I think that was brilliant. You know, um, it's just cl- a classic, you know, Shatner fans, people who love it. That song, uh, Common People, that he did, that single was just amazing. But at the same time, it, it was so cool and so good. And he did it with um, Ben Folds, who was, you know, incredibly yeah. talented mm-hmm. and had Henry Rollins on it and had Joe Jackson and. I said, you know, that sets the bar really high. Um, I'm a little afraid that that that's you know going to be a tough a tough uh, milestone to reach. Something like that. And he said, well, listen, we're not trying to make has been part two. We're trying to do something completely different. And he really let me uh, do what I do, and we made something really cool. That a, a, he had a real concept about the character major tom uh, from all the songs and he's mm-hmm. like who's major tom i want to tell this his story and use different songs that have him in it as the lyrics and he's just such an amazing creative guy um is he as cool as he seems absolutely yeah. he's he's always the coolest guy in any room he's just so sweet so gracious and kind I never thought through this process that that I would end up becoming friends with him. But he, my wife and little girl, we go over to their house and watch Monday Night Football with him and his family, and during the fall, and we hang That's out. Fun. And I go to his horse shows, and you know, I call I call him when my buddy's having a birthday, and I say, "Hey, we do a, ver- a video message," and he'll just like, "Absolutely, what's his name?" <laughs> he's just super cool. Yeah, yeah, That's super awesome. cool. I love to hear stories he's a, like that. Yeah, he's fantastic, man. Absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, and he just turned 90 this past week. I mean, yeah. how, what? and he's just still going, still going and still going. He just, he has this thing where he says yes to everything. Um, and that leads to amazing things happening. You know, you could sit back and say, well, this gig's not worth enough money. It's going to be a lot of trouble. I'm going to have to travel. He just says yes. And th- incredible things happen. Sure. Um, and when we were making that first record, we it turned out the guy who was curating talent uh, reaching out to different people for, to get a guest star playing on different songs. We were going to do a cover of Iron Man, and uh, he reached out to Zach Wilde to see if Zach wanted to play on it. And Zach was a huge Trekkie fan. And so Zach said, absolutely, I want to do it, and I want you guys to come up to my studio up in Castaic when I do it. And so he said, ask Bill if he would come up. So I was like, oh, man, I don't know if Bill Shatner, an 80-year-old guy, is going to want to go <laughs> hang out with was Zach Wilde the whole day? You know, to me, it sounded incredibly fun, but I'm yeah, also, yeah. you know, right. this is a, a whole different thing. And I remember asking Bill if he would be interested in that. And he, without even blinking an eye, he said, absolutely. Tell me when we're going. And we went up to the studio and in, we got there about 10 in the morning. And I thought we'd be there a couple of hours because all he had to do was record the solo. 
we we didn't come out of there till nighttime. We we were like just hanging out, food in, hung out. His studio was lit on the top of this mountain, so you're just overlooking like three or four mountain ranges up in Castaic. Yeah, uh, you know, eagles flying by this bay window <laughs> of the studio. Uh, and his studio has you know over 500 guitars. It looks oh, like a guitar center wall. And it's just like a rock and roll museum. And Zach is just an incredibly interesting guy himself, in and of himself. And he and Shatner hit it off. And they're just talking about World War II and this and that <laughs> and Star Trek. And there was always – it was just being a – sitting back and being a fly on the wall. And that and I have film of that day too. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Just fantastic. And, and it ended up turning out great. And the record came out. We got a number one on the Billboard Heat Seeker chart. So awesome. like, and on top of everything, I get my first Billboard number one. It's just crazy, man. Yeah, just crazy. Awesome. And and then I got to produce a. We did a Christmas album a few years later, and then the blues record two years ago. So it's yeah. it's been it's been. I've gotten to do so much amazing stuff with him, and then and then gotten to do so much more that I would have never dreamed about. You know, yeah. could never could never dream it up. You know. So when you're producing, I mean, what what what's your thoughts going into a session as a producer? Well, you know, every every situation is different. Um, but I think as a producer, the, the the things that I've learned from all these great producers, from Quincy Jones to to Don Was to um, Andy Johns, is y- what you're trying to do is you're trying to help the. It's you're you're trying to be a service. You're trying to help the artist. It's all about them, and it's all about their songs. How do I help you achieve getting something great? How do we take this to the next level? How do we make this sound great? How do we make this sound like you're hearing it in your head? Um, you know, sometimes that means you're a you're you're a mediator between band members, and you have to know how to like be a shrink, and you have to sit down and talk to somebody when he's fighting with one guy or maybe you know you have to like learn it's it's meant wearing a lot of hats and a lot of the records i do i have to engineer too which i love doing but at the same time those are fun hats to wear separately but wearing it at the same time something's going to kind of suffer because you're running around a lot yeah it's it's challenging and it's and by the end of the end of a day at a a normal a typical session you kind of feel like you ran a marathon but it's very rewarding and amazing when you sit back and you listen to a song and you're getting chills and the artist is patting you on the shoulder going, oh, my God, it's, it turned yeah, out better yeah. than I thought. And you're just like, oh, fantastic, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, every situation is different. But, you know, that's all I try to impart to them what I've learned and what all these great producers, you know, what I learned from them. I just say, well, this is how I learned how to do it. Sometimes it's just staying out of the way. Sometimes you just meet an artist and you're just like – the best thing I can do is not interfere with what you do. Just hit the record and get out of your way. Not say a lot and let you do your thing. And then again, maybe sometimes people need a lot of help and, and you yeah. really, you know, literally I'll, I'll work with, you know, I working with Cheryl Crow on the first, um, Shatner record and, you know, just literally setting up the mic and just say, what do you want me to do? And you tell her and she does it and you just get chills listening to her singing. And you're like, this yeah. is, She's as good as it gets and knows the gig and is such a gifted artist. And then I'll work with a new young band. Like I worked with a band called Veins of Jenna and, you know, they're a super, really cool young band, but 
you know, the drummer was having a little little problem grooving, and I'm like, I literally have to go into their pre-production room and figure out how can I help this guy like take it up a notch. How do I help him learn to groove a little better? And I would literally study his drumming, and I'm like, well, look at his body mechanics. It's all mm-hmm. the way he's sitting. He's sitting so far away from the bass drum pedal, he can't get a, a, any good velocity on it. He's struggling. He's working too hard, you know. Yeah. And just like helping him recreate, you know change a few things tweak a couple of things and all was like oh now he's sitting up straighter his back's not hurting and he's grooving a little better and his time's better and it's like just sometimes it's just being that outside per- person to to bounce ideas off of maybe you just you know or maybe they trust you enough to they treat you like the the, the, the other band member and they're really bouncing ideas off of you you know so yeah. i think every situation is different you know you just have to know how to how to go about it and you know i just learned to, to, to do the best I can uh, and um, just serve the song and the client in the best way you possibly can. That's the first thing I say whenever I meet with people. I'm like, how can I help you? You know, yeah. let's figure out how I can help you. And, and, you know, sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it's, you know, the one and only time you work with them, but that's, that's life. You know, I think it's great to work with different people because you'll just grow and evolve in different ways and take things you learn from one person and go on and, Take something you learn from somebody else, and uh, but yeah, it's just it's an it's amazing getting to wear all those different hats. Yeah, absolutely. What, what makes you decide to take on a project? I mean, there's had to be some times where you've declined. Well, you know, you got to pay the rent. That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the one thing you got to. Um, and and I and I kind of subs- subscribe to to bills uh, saying yes to things. You know, mm-hmm. I I a lot of times I think of it as like, well, maybe this is going to be a challenge. Maybe this really isn't in my wheelhouse. I have there there have been certain things where I've said, I'm really not. I'm really I really feel unqualified to do this. You yeah. know, m- maybe my buddy might be a little bit bit qualified. Uh, and sometimes that they they're like that's fine we we want that we don't want somebody who's you know knows everything about this this type of music whatever so i think that you know sometimes it's about the challenge and sometimes it's just about you know it's rare that i that i will do something and say well i wish i hadn't done that sure. there's always something great that comes out of it in some way shape or form i think yeah so you happy where you are now you seem like you are absolutely yeah absolutely i i'm more than blessed and i feel so thankful that that i don't have to be away from my wife and and little girl and i can't work from home every day because uh my little girl has cerebral palsy so you know she has to she has to have constant care and we have a nurse that comes for her um that will help with her going to school and of course you know most of the kids are doing school by zoom Right. So they're all home, but you know, if I were traveling, it just, it just, it, I, I just don't think we could hold it together because my wife just yeah, needs. The, the, yeah, it takes, it takes a, a, um, it takes a team to to make it all work, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's fantastic, you know. And we live a little bit out of Hollywood, so we're not in the thick of things and the craziness of things. My studio is at my place. It's like. Man, there's days where I just don't even have to leave the house. It's 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 quite a blessing, man, to be able to do it all here. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, tell me about you. Also worked with David Hasselhoff. How was that? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that was just with the same label. Um, I got that call, and they said, "Hey, we've got a, a gig that might be interesting. Let's go meet with them." And it turned out to be the Hoff. 
and he was fantastic. He was, was you know, I, what I think that the thing that I, I never knew is I always knew he did music, but I didn't really know anything. So the immediately when you say, all right, I'm going to meet with this guy in a, in a week, let me do my homework. So I immediately dug in and got on the line and just went down the rabbit hole of, of things that he's done musically. And it was pretty cool and enlightening. I'm like, wow, this guy seems to be really talented in music. It just, he just seems to unfortunately be paired up with people and producers and writers who are just unfortunately taking him kind of a cheesy, corny way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, that was probably the biggest challenge because when I met with him, I realized that he actually was a musician before he was a, an actor. Right. So I'm like, this guy is old school. He knows how to sing in key. He knows how to do takes. He doesn't have to be tuned and edited. He's like one of those guys that just, you know, learned to, to do it, learn the craft. And so, um, that, that part of it I said was going to be easy, but I said, now we need to figure out what he wants to do. And Brian said, look, I have a kind of a concept. Let's, let's uh, start putting together um, some songs from that era that would be great. And so we were starting to kind of like go through the music libraries and figure out what would be great material. And I said, you know, I think the thing that, that he's lacking that I would like to see happen with him musically is like, it'd be nice to see him like do something to get a shred of credibility. Like let's yeah. bring him in some stuff that's really great. And so I started to think of, he kept saying he wanted to make a cool record. And I'm like, okay, I keep hearing him say, cool, cool, cool. Well, when I'm, if I'm thinking 80s and I'm thinking cool, I'm like, one of the coolest bands I loved was like Lords of the New Church and stuff like that. Right. And I'm like, I want to, like, I would love to, let, let me take him, open your eyes and see what he thinks. And I remember taking him that. He liked it. And he started reading the lyrics. And he's like, whoa, like, talk about, this guy was writing this back in the early 80s and how true it is today it really like struck a nerve and he goes, this song would be great. And so from that song, I'm like, there's nothing cooler than that. We did a little nice. demo of it and he sang it. I'm like, Whoa, he sounds great singing this. I mean, imagine Brian, uh, David Hasselhoff doing stiff Bader yeah. and doing it like where it's like, he's really selling it. And it's not just like, you know, he's pulling it off, but like he's doing it. It's, it's like, this is working. So that song that kind of became like the hub of the, the, the wheel, you know, the cog yeah. of the wheel. Um, and I was, I was like, now we just need to use that song and find others that, A, he can deliver and do great. He'll sound great on. And then are cool. And we put together that a, a record that I really thought was cool. And he still calls me. He called me the other day when he found out my dad passed away. And he said, man, my condolences. And how you doing? And he'll just leave me messages. And he'll say, you know, man, we really did something. And it was really cool. And it was really something special. And I was like, you know, who cares how many albums it sold? That I was able to help him, you know, achieve something cool that he really wanted to do artistically and something that I was proud of, that he's really proud of, and we made something great. And, yeah, that's got to be gratifying know, to get that call. The, the, oh, it's, it is, man. It's, it's, it's the ultimate pat on the back, you know. It, it, really, it really is, and we had an incredible team working on it, and Jurgen Engler and I co-produce a lot of these records together. Um, we co-produce them, and, and Jurgen was in uh, – his band is uh, Die Krups from Germany, and he's just an incredible writer, singer, producer, guitar player, just multi-instrumentalist, and he's just amazing. I mean, he was one of the forefathers of industrial music. I mean, Rammstein kind of f founded their sound on yeah. Die Krups. That's kind of where it came from. And they actually nipped a bit of Die Krups' song and 
they had to give uh, Jurgen writer credit. So he's got a writer credit on their Rammstein's first record because oh, wow. they were his they were their his big their biggest influence. But he's kind of like the god one of the godfathers of industrial music, and you know he's like an older brother to me now. And where I just you know I call him all the time and we work on projects all the time, and I just learned so much from him because he's just so talented. Yeah. But um, yeah, man. It, you know, it's one thing leads to another, and you just say yes to certain things, and you, who knows what what happens, you know. And yeah. along the way, hopefully, you can, you know, m- make a living doing what you're doing, and and you know, go on the journey of life, you know. Yeah. So tell me about um, Sunbomb. Sunbomb was uh, Tracy and uh, Michael Sweet had started chatting. I can't remember how they hooked up, but. They had met, started chatting, and they started kind of kicking around the idea of like they were talking about this er, this new when when the new uh, metal that what was it called new album uh, new wave of British heavy metal first came out early Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. all that stuff and how much they both loved that sound and they're like God wouldn't it be fun to do a record that sounded like that that captured that vibe and they just looked at each other and they go. That's what that's what we're gonna do. That's our concept. Is we want to like try to get that capture of that sound, but our our version of it. And so they literally went into it. It's so great when you have that vision and you have a a concept because it, it it's it's like having a great title of a movie you want to write, and then you go, okay, let me now let's write this movie. What's for chapter one? What's chapter two? Yeah. It's much easier than saying, hey, I want to make this great movie, and I don't know really what it's going to be about, and I don't really know what I'm going to call it. Sometimes I find that that some of the greatest songs happen when I have a great title. So I have a page of, in my in my uh, notebook that I just write titles down. If I think of a great title, I'm like, "Ooh, I'm going to write that song one day, and that's going to be the title." Yeah, um, it can just be a different way of creating. So they had this this concept, and uh, Shane, uh, who was the drummer in Ellie Guns at the time, was going to play drums on it. Um, something happened. Shane ended up getting a gig with Kanye West. And so he left LA guns and couldn't do the sun bomb record. So that's when Tracy called and said, Hey, would you want to play drums and mix this? And I said, absolutely. And so that's how that happened. There you, you know, are again just, in the right there, place. There, yeah. Right place, <laughs> right time. You get that call and you say, yes, you just don't think about it. Just yeah. say yes. And, and one thing leads to another and you know, it, it 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 would have been a lot of fun if we had been able to go on Capitol Records and all do it together, you know. But it just turned out Tracy was over in, in Europe, Michael was in Boston, and I was here, and we literally spoke on the phone one time, and then we literally made the record by just texting and emailing. You really? know, we would send send it each other files. Sounds killer. What I've heard of it. Well, I think so too. Thank you. I think those guys wrote a wrote a really great record and. It turned out fantastic, and uh, it is what it is. It's not for everybody. Not everybody loves that that sound, but for the people that that you know grew up loving that sound, I think they kind of did a good job of capturing it. I mean, it's it kind of has that old school, early '80s, you know, new wave of heavy metal Definitely. vibe to it. You Definitely. know, and Michael's vocals are on point. Yeah, he's inc- just, he's incredible, incredible, man. Yeah, it's it's really fun getting to make records with some of these guys and getting to just solo their vocals and listening to I them. Going, oh my god, just incredible, man! Dissecting the 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 listening to him just in their raw form, just yeah. hearing that hearing that gift they have is is just it'll just give you chills, man. When when does that album come out? Next month. <laughs> Yeah, any any day now. I think I think they released the second single. So I, as far as I know, I don't I don't know what the street date is, but I know it's it's their pre-orders going, and it's any day now. Yeah, 
Is it is it going to be a band or was it just a project? I think it was. They were. They said, "Well, we'll see how it goes," you know. And then the pandemic hit, and then you're like, "Well, it'll yeah. probably just be what it is." Um, right. Because I, I I can't really realistically foresee me going out and playing drums for them just sure. just for for many reasons. Uh, not that they wouldn't in any way, but uh, I, who knows? Who knows? It, you know, you never know, man. You yeah, never know. We'll see how it goes. All right, Adam. Absolutely. Well, listen, man. It was great talking to you. I, I, great talking with you too, man. I'm glad we got this thing working. I, I'm going to have to go back and see what's going on with that little adapter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me let me know if you need anything else, man, or if something isn't clear, or or you know, you need to fill in some blanks or whatever, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, buddy. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms.